Let's go to the Lord together before we listen to his word. We pray each week what's called a prayer of illumination. One of the things that is acknowledging and expressing is that even in our hearing and understanding of the word, we are dependent upon God's spirit to give us the meaning to apply it to our lives both individually and corporately. So, Let's go to the Lord and ask the Spirit of God, who guides us into all the truth, to be our teacher this morning. Father, we thank you that you have revealed yourself, your plan of salvation, your purposes, your actions in history, your character, and your heart in your word. We submit ourselves and we humble ourselves before your word and pray that we would listen reverently that we would be quiet before your word, and, and quiet in our souls, not questioning, not combating, but surrendering and submitting to your message, even if we don't like it. And I pray that for myself as well. Uh, the texts of Scripture, in fact, I, I would even think, go so far as to think that if we don't allow ourselves to be contradicted and challenged by your word, how in the world can we have a true relationship with you. So I pray, Father, that we would be open to your challenging us. We pray, Holy Spirit, you would teach us individually and corporately what you design for us to know. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, what we have been doing these last few weeks is going through the first section of Paul's letter to the Romans. So we're kind of looking at Romans 1 to 3 and doing it under the general heading of our need for the gospel. So I know it may seem you may be coming and going, oh my goodness, more bad news. But here's the thesis behind every one of these. This is how Paul is starting. It's pretty much, it is only to the degree that you understand your own need of the gospel. Only to the degree that, and to the depth that you understand your own flaws and weakness and brokenness. And it's not the healthy who need a doctor, it's the sick. And it's to the degree that you understand the depths of your own sickness. To look at Jesus as the healer, the rescuer, the deliverer, all that the gospel promises us, it is then that, you, that it almost worship becomes a wow. It's transformative. It changes your life. And so Paul has been going through various groups. This is kind of we're into the body. We said that he starts his letter basically by introducing himself, talking about how he's set apart for the gospel. Then he goes about basically giving his thesis that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation and that he yearns, he longs to come and visit the church at Rome, that they would mutually edify one another. And then in verse 18, where we started last week, he begins by showing our universal need of the gospel. We pick up this morning at chapter 2, and I will read. This is one of the reasons I'm having you stay seated. It's a fairly lengthy scripture reading. So Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 16. Friends, hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet do them yourself, that you will escape 
the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness And their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Well, as we're exploring Paul's gospel, the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile, a major part of the gospel I'm sorry to say so, but it's true. major part of the gospel is the reality of judgment. Judgment may not be popular. Like I said, this is probably not the greatest church growth strategy. Hey, how are you growing the church? I'm going to major on wrath and judgment for a while. That probably doesn't bring out the crowds, do you think? But I would not be preaching the whole counsel of God, nor would we be understanding, so there would be a detriment to our diet on the food of God's word that he gives us if we didn't understand properly the judgment of God. It may not be popular, but it is reality. It is a real thing. Let me put it this way. One of the things we have to recognize in exploring a topic like this, and I think I said this last week, is we have to recognize that God's anger, God's wrath, and our anger, our wrath, are two separate things. We read a word like wrath or anger and judgment, and we immediately interpret and evaluate based on what we experience or we feel or we express. The way God expresses it and the way we express it, completely different things. But to come face to face with it, the biblical angry God is a scary thing. Listen to this passage in the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 6, where it says, Then the kings of the earth... The princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and every slave and every free man hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Friends, I'm here to tell you, and I will go this far, we need an angry God. We need a God that gets angry at sin. We need a God of wrath and judgment if we are going to have humility, and if we are going to know how loved we really are. 
Because his anger is not the absence of love, it is the evidence of his love. If God did not resist sin, remember in chapter 1 we read, here's what truly is scary, when he says, I gave them up. I stopped caring. I was indifferent. I gave them over to their sin. You want an angry God to get in your face and resist our foolishness, our sin, our flaws. See, if we don't believe in an angry God who hates sin and punishes us, you know who we're impoverishing? We're impoverishing ourselves. See, we need to understand God's judgment if we are going to understand the good news of what God did in the gospel. So in this passage, that was my introduction, hopefully not too long, but in this passage I want us to tackle this pretty difficult and deep topic, but look at it in two ways. I want us to see the problem of judgment in order to find our hope in judgment. So hang with me, it's going to get good. But you've got to understand the problem in order to see the hope. Now, to really understand the problem and where Paul is going in chapter 2, we really have to understand the context and where we came from in chapter 1. In chapter 1, verses 18 to 32, Paul basically told everyone that they were without excuse for suppressing the truth of God in unrighteousness and how God gave them over to all sorts of forms of depravity and corruption. You had the gossips and the slanderers and the malicious and, the, and, and even the ones, the inventors of evil. I, I've had to read that several times and going, what are we doing to invent evil? Think about that. And then immediately in the beginning of chapter 2, he transitions to saying, therefore you have no excuse. You have no excuse either. Not only them, but you. And it begs the question in the context who is the you? Who is the you that Paul is speaking to? See, we're not sure right away, but there are a couple of things we know. Back in verse 17, Paul does identify or refer to those who call themselves the Jew, and he's not as specific here. What he is specific about, and what he's referring to with the you, is he's describing a personality type. He is describing a type of person. He is, and all the commentators seem to tell us, turning to, in a sense, a, an imaginary representative of a real and identifiable group of people. So he's not putting names and faces and all of that. He's not going after a particular person, but he's taking a group of people that are easily identified, and he's saying, you also have no excuse. And what is it that identifies them? Their style of relating. How they come across. And how do they come across? And maybe this is the scary part for us. They pass judgment on others. They determine that they know what is best for others. They determine they're right and we can evaluate everybody else. So there's us and them. And they're able to determine their faith. Think about what a judge is. A judge determines a verdict. This is where we learn judgment and accountability are two different things. We're not talking about somebody who speaks into your life 
who you know is for you, who enters into your life and holds you accountable, or somebody who knows you so well and knows God's mind so well that they can determine exactly what you deserve and dole it out. Because what does a judge do? A judge determines the verdict. See, and look at what is going on here. Again, we have to put this into context to understand and see what Paul is doing here and why we call this the problem of judgment. See, in verses 18 to 32, it's so easy to see how these people... You look, they're, they're wearing... Those are what I like to call the red light sins. They're blaring. Shameful, lust, mouth. They're kind of wearing their brokenness on a sleeve. It's obvious to see that this other group, not so obvious. They could be sitting in a congregation, maybe like ours, listening so dutifully to the Word of God, hearing the letter read to them. And they may be thinking to themselves, that's right, Paul, go get them, brother. Preach it. Problem with this world is we don't confront people. We need to do that. Go get them, Paul. Yeah. Problem is those people. Problem is those out there. They're the ones out there. And then the letter continues, and Paul says, he doesn't end at chapter 1, verse 32. He goes, you, therefore. And you know, you know what he's trying to get? Me? Yeah, you. You, therefore, have no excuse. Apparently, there is another type of people who miss the gospel. See, it's so easy to sit there and say, oh, it's them. See, for the Jews, it was easy. It was the Gentiles. For the Gentiles, it was easy. For the Jews, who is it for us today? And we have to be careful. You know, you've got very polarized culture and a polarized society. And I'm not saying don't have convictions, but the danger and the hard part of this is this is talking to our dispositions, our attitudes in terms of things. As one commentator put it, in chapter 2, Paul is showing the Jews and thus religious people. Who did they see? Who were the Jewish people? They were the people who had the law and the covenants. They were the chosen people. So they were the ones who represented the religious people. And Paul is showing them that they were missing the whole point of the gospel. The heart of the gospel is that the righteousness of God is revealed, which means what? You don't have a righteousness. The righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. And Paul is showing us that everyone who turns from it and tries to avoid it, we run from it whenever we rely on anything or anyone else but Jesus and his perfect finished work. For the pagans, chapter 1, verses 18 to 32, their sensual appetites, which become chains around their neck. For religious, moral, upstanding, conservative people, we might be relying on our rightness, our moral observance, which verse 5 tells us stores up God's wrath just as much. The pagans worship self, this commentator writes, through appetite, but the religious worship self through morality and religion. If you do not feel like a hopeless sinner, if you do not feel that God would have a perfect right to cast you off this very minute because of the condition of your life and heart, then you are denying the gospel. And when it is open to you, it won't change you or lift you up. You don't get it. Now, how do we know? What is, in a sense, the test? How do we know if we get it or not? 
The answer is look at your relationships. Look at. See, judgment is a relational issue. How do you come across to people? I know we often like to say we speak the truth in love. But these verses are telling us that speaking the truth in love is much more than just having the sincere feeling of love towards the other person. That it really is about how do we come across to them? What is our style of relating? Listen again to these opening verses. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. So do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? I love how another writer put it when he said, talking about chapter 1, those people are on a dark spiral downward. But now speaking about chapter 2, he says, but if you think that leaves you on the high ground where you can point your finger at others, think again. Every time you criticize someone, you condemn yourself. It takes one to know one. Judgmental criticism of others is a well-known way of escaping deception. In other words, truth in our own crimes and misdemeanors. So when we are criticizing and fault-finding of others, we are refusing to pray, search me, O God, and know my heart. We're diligent in praying, search me, O God, and know their hearts. Reveal to me what's wrong with them, and I'll help, because I love them. I'll point it out to them. And we might be missing the truth about ourselves. And here's the logic. If you miss the truth about yourself, you miss the solution to the truth about yourself, which is Jesus Christ. You miss the joy and the peace and the love of Jesus Christ. See, follow Paul's logic here in these opening verses of chapter 2. First, he says that no one lives up to his or her standards. So you who pass judgment do the very same things. And second, this means that the standards we use on others will be the standard by which we are judged. Francis Schaeffer had a very searching illustration of this, that he put it this way. He said, these verses are like an invisible tape recorder that is around your neck. You walk around with it always. And Paul means it as if there is an invisible tape recorder around the necks of us all. It only records things we say to others about how they ought to live and behave. Then at the last day, God the judge will take the tape recorder off your neck and say, I'll be completely fair. I'm a completely fair and just God. I will simply judge you on the basis of what your own words on this tape recorder say are the standards for human behavior. And he then goes on, not a person in history will be able to stand in judgment against his or her own words. Have I been paying attention to the words I speak? Have you been paying attention to the words 
you speak? Maybe the words we speak only to ourselves or the words we speak to others. Now again, I'm going to repeat this. Don't misunderstand me. This is not the same thing as accountability. This does not mean that we're not involved and hold each other accountable, but what it does mean is we ought to be extremely careful with the disposition and the frame and the attitude of our heart. We need to watch out and be on our guard against all forms of superiority. All forms coming across as superior or that we are writing off someone. Remember that judgment is an evaluation. It is reaching a conclusion. A judge reaches a conclusion and declares a verdict. Is that how we're coming across? Friends, that's the problem of judgment. You ready for the good news? What's the hope in judgment? See, we need a God who judges in order to understand the kindness and tolerance and patience of God. Remember Paul's main point in this passage. He is showing, just like in verse chapter 1, he was showing that more or less the pagan people, the people who have nothing to do with church and biblical religion, they need the gospel. Here in chapter 2, he's showing us religious people, upstanding people, that we need the gospel just as much. He says, you might not be given over to sensual appetites, but here's a daring application. Ask someone close to you. I'll give you an idea, maybe a spouse or a close friend. How you come across to them. How they perceive you. Not, but I'm speaking the truth. Time out. The minute you want to say, but, it's time to be quiet. Ask them how you are perceived and be prepared. See, are you perceived as angry, critical, never happy with anyone, judgmental, even, and maybe especially in our accountability relationships, there should be the sense that the person knows, really knows, that you are for them, that you are safe, that if you're going to speak into their lives, they know you are for them. And they feel that sense of safety and security with them. So how do we become that kind of person? What is the hope in judgment? Look with me at verses 4 and 5. Or do you presume on the riches? Now listen carefully to the words. On the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that it is God's kindness that is meant to lead you to repentance. Wait a second, I thought it was going to be, I need to know more principles, godly principles, and that leads me to repentance. That's not what it says. What is it that brings about change? What is it that gets us from point A to point B? It is being saturated in the grace of God. It is the kindness of God that is meant to lead us to repentance. See, these are very dangerous verses because this presumption, this contempt or scorn is so much more of an attitude or disposition that comes out. We may not even be aware of it. It comes out in how we relate to other people. 
That's why, and I quote Jack Miller all the time. When Jack Miller was speaking, he says, you want to know something about our relationships? And he was confessing and sharing about himself. He says, I am so much more dangerous when I'm right. And you know what he was getting at there? He was getting at the fact that when I'm right, so when I've got truth on my side, that's when I'm much more dangerous to judge, to evaluate, to write somebody off, to fault find, to be critical, forgetting that what led me into the truth, what led me to repentance from falsehood to truth in the first place? If I'm right, and we may be right about something, if I'm right, do you know why that is? That is because of the unbelievable, unmatchable, unfathomable kindness of God towards us. You're not right because you're somehow super smart. You're right because God shed his kindness to you. We haven't gotten to it yet, and it may be months, who knows, maybe years away. I have no idea. But in chapter 5, one of my favorite uh, verses in the letter to the Romans says, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, he shows his love. So in other words, we've got a tangible demonstration, like rolling out the red carpet of the love and kindness of God. And then I love this next part. It says, while we are still sinners. Do you know what that means? That means before you got your act together. Before you were finished with all of our brokenness and flaws, insecurities and fears, anxieties and selfishness, while you were still sinners. Not after you got your stuff together and were hot stuff. Jesus died for you and you accept. But while you were still rejecting in him, him and rebelling from him and turning away from him and not loving him or other people, Jesus died for you. Do you not see that forgiveness and acceptance and belonging comes first? If you struggle with how you come across with showing contempt for the riches of God's kindness, think of the cross. And one last thing as we close and go to the Lord's table. He says in verses 6 and following, and these can be confusing verses, so I want to touch upon them. I didn't know if lightning was coming or something like that. I had to look around. I was going, I think God approves of this message. It is his word. It says in verse 6, he will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Now, I want to touch upon this because at first glance it can look like a contradiction, right? From what Paul is teaching. Is, is Paul somehow contradicting himself that salvation is a free gift of God's grace? Okay, first of all, let's give Paul a whole lot more credit than that. He's a whole lot more smarter than that. So when it says God will give to each person according to what he's done, we need to recognize this is not based, this is not the basis for, of what he's done, but it's more like a test. It is not a contradiction because he's saying, what you've done is not the basis of your salvation, but what you do is the test. 
that you've put your faith in Christ and understand it. It is much like Paul's statement in Galatians chapter 5, verse 6, where he says, neither circumcision, which was what the Jewish people had done to prove themselves, or uncircumcision, which is what Gentile people do to prove themselves, count for anything. But the only thing that counts is faith working through love. What Paul here is saying is that love is not the basis. So what you've done, a life of love, is not the basis of your acceptance with God, but it's the test by which you understand that you're in Christ. It is more, one pastor illustrated it this way, and I like the way he illustrated it, so I'll give this illustration. He says, the apples on an apple tree prove life. They don't provide life. The apples are the test that the tree is alive, but it is the roots which pull in nourishment. And he says it is in the same way, faith in Christ alone, grace, salvation as a gift, is alone what provides new life. But a changed life of love. What the text says, Paul puts it, persistence in doing good, seeking his glory, honor versus self-seeking is what proves, is what demonstrates we have real faith. See, friends, do not despise, show contempt, or presume upon the kindness and forbearance and patience of God. Be saturated in it. Brennan Manning says, risk everything on Jesus. The ragamuffin gospel says we can't lose because we have nothing to lose. We live under the sign of the cross. Lord, as we come to your table now, it is to the sign and the proclamation of the cross that we go. We pray, Father, we just thank you for Jesus. What can we say? This text reveals how unloving, we think we're loving, but how unloving we really are. But we also recognize how sufficient, how perfect, The sacrifice of Jesus is on our behalf, and it's to Jesus that we run, and it's to Jesus we go now to nourish us. In his name, amen.